Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Really 007 podcast. I'm your host, Tom Pickup, and in this episode, we'll be discussing From Russia We Love. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, before mm. that, there are various places you can find us uh, to listen to, that is, uh, including iTunes and Spotify, the main two. And clearly, if you are listening, at least one of those must be in working order. We're available on most social media platforms, including uh, the trio of Facebook, Twitter, and Insta. Just look for Really 007 and feel free to join in on the debate and tell us how we're completing or indeed failing our missions. So my team discussing the early Sean Connery classic tonight consists of Mr. John Kell, Mr. Chris Goldie, and my youngest brother, Harry Pickup. Good evening, gents. Good evening. Good evening. Mr. Bond. Babyish. Uh, so, yes, you will know of uh, these gentlemen before. <laughs> if you don't know, you'll get to know them tonight. But uh, this is the first uh, episode that Harry Pickup has uh, been on, on the podcast, the Really 007 podcast. So, Harry, just uh, just tell us a bit about yourself and uh, how you came to sort of love the Bond films. Well, for those listeners who've heard from Octopussy and The Changing Face of M, it's a very similar story to yours and maths because the three of us are indeed brothers and as you've said I'm the youngest so in some ways I kind of followed you and math into this obsession I just kind of copied you and because you were watching it and because you were in charge uh, of telly (laughs) I watched it too but by no means was I um, forced to watch it absolutely loved watching James Bond and as I think um, as Rob described it in Octopus Sea, it's like a you know a warm jumper that you'd put on, um, and there's a different bond for every mood. I think it might have been you that said that, Chris. So, I mean, I compl- I feel like we're all completely in the same boat here, where we've grown up on it, and it, it's something that we go to, and it has a certain feeling for us. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of nostalgia attached to it. And yeah, just to summarise and repeat what's been said, but as brothers, we'd watch them regularly. Um, especially Sunday afternoons, um, 
or a Saturday when there wasn't any football to go to, we'd watch a Bond. Um, and yeah, from there we we got into the the process of filming our own on our dad's camcorder, which was a spectacular experience. And um, a couple of those are <laughs> available to watch on DVD. Should anyone <laughs> wish to, we'll be um, reviewing them shortly. But yeah, that uh, that just. Keener listeners. <laughs> oh, please no. Please no. No, we won't. Are they, uh, are they better edited than Quantum of Solace? Oh, here we oh. go. Here we go. There's Daniel Crowe reference there. Uh, it's to the, um, about three minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Crowe did. <laughs> but the process, that process of making films was a, a bit like this because it gave us the excuse to sort of look deeper into the Bond films and copy elements of it and work out what we loved and uh, what we wanted to fast forward, you know, the talking scenes. So there's a lot of yeah. <laughs> a lot of action in our Bond films. Um, <laughs> I've done that again. Um, but yeah, then I suppose just to wrap up. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, sort of after university, got married, had a kid. And, you know, a, f- a few years have passed. And just before we started this podcast, I'd uh, got them on my Amazon Prime. I'd bought them and was working my way through them chronologically and just really my word, appreciating them as an adult now, um, not just with the nostalgia uh, point of view, but just loving how well made they are. And I think it's probably the first time we'll have watched them in order as well. And I think that's actually had quite some say on my appreciation of them. Um, So that's an interesting experience. But now I also like the idea of what we're doing with Really 007, of jumping around um, from bond to bond and comparing them that way. Uh, but yeah, that's me. Um, I've already probably rambled on, uh, but uh, thanks for having me. No, I, I, I was just uh, just taking me back to the time of watching Bond films by the fire, a bit like uh, Bond and his brother Blofeld used to do. I think. Um, I think that's a, it's it's one of those weird things. It's a bit like well, <laughs> from a Christian point of view, do you read the Bible from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation? I don't think I've ever uh, seen all the Bonds from Doctor No to Spectre or or ones before that, uh, in order. I don't think I've ever done that. Have you, have you done that, John? Uh, read the Bible or James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, yes, for the purpose of this podcast, um, the Bonds. Uh, uh, have I done it? No, I haven't. I don't think I have, actually. I think I probably would have intended to when like ITV had done them from Wednesday nights from Dot to No to, uh, well, it was probably around the Brosnan era. But to be honest, there's no way I'd have consistently sat down every single week and done it. So I don't reckon I have, no. You what about Chris? you, Chris? I have. When it came to like the DVD releases and things, like that, you obviously have home video and you've got them all. There was always a concerted effort to, to, to start from Dr. No, and I think it was all the way up to die another day and it was it was it was it was a great exercise because there's always that temptation to kind of skip the one that maybe you're not that much of a fan of or you're not in the mood for but it was always great and then once i always felt like once i did them chronologically i can just then go dip back to my favorites whenever i wanted to but yeah i have done it that that way and it was it was it was really uh like there are some certain things and like hopefully talk about this about from Russia with love but you know there's that there is a real connection with with, with dr no and it's they're almost it's actually quite nice to watch them back to back you know but it's not you don't have to watch dr no to, to watch this um but yeah there's that nice continuation and references you know much much lighter touch than on some of the later films you sometimes forget don't you that you could watch say thunderball 
and assume that that was made with all the other Roger Moore films already in existence because when you were kids, you just watched them all and they presumed they all existed in some kind of universe all at the same time. But of course, that's particularly from Russia with Luck. Yeah. You see how pioneering the, the films are, don't you, early on? Oh, yeah. I think, um, like you say, that, 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 that I think that was one thing when you when you kind of put, like, obviously, like, it was much later, felt like, you know, I probably had seen, you know, maybe um, Living Daylights. Uh, it was an early film, that's one I saw at the cinema. But obviously, I was aware of Roger Moore, so I'd seen the occasional Roger Moore at, at, on, on TV. But going back to particularly those first couple, do you realise just how, like I say, how modern they are in terms of their technique, whether they're edited, very stylish, you know, that they have. Oh, yeah. And then if you watch, you know, anything from the same, released in the same year around that, everything just seems quite dull and a bit kind of stale, you know. The, yeah, the use of absolutely. editing is, is, is incredibly modern. And I think it really, like I say, paves the way for modern action and adventure films. We'll definitely go into a lot, a lot of that tonight. I think looking back on seeing the film quite recently after not having seen it for a number of years, you really appreciate uh, the shots, the direction, the editing, particularly from Peter Hunt. But we will, we will touch on that in much more detail. So Harry, just going back to you, you don't have to say a, 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 you know, a massive yes or no, or a big one, big answer, but who, who, who is your favorite Bond and, or which is your favorite Bond film? I've been, Dreading this question, preparing <laughs> for this question, and uh, I'm, I'm still not able to give you an answer. Tom. No one's given a proper I can't, answer yet. I can't pick a favourite film, um, nor a favourite Bond. Um, and again, going back to that, um, that kind of, you know, comparing it to what mood you're in, putting on a jumper, depending on what mood you're in. Like I, when I watched Octopussy the other day, it was so, so comforting. But then when I watched Doctor No as sort of the startup of the franchise, it was really, really exciting. And, you know, I was looking so deeply at it. And then, um, you know, you might go to die another day for one. I'm not, don't, I'm not saying that's my favorite, <laughs> but I'm saying you might go to, die, there might be one day, believe it or not, where you do choose die another day because you can, you know, you're Every there with your friends it. or with people, you know, and, <laughs> and you can kind of talk through it. There are some that, you can. You, there's some that you want to sit down and intensely get engrossed with, and there's some that you don't mind having on in the background a bit more. Um, but for me, I think my favourite actor to play James Bond, at the moment, I'm leaning towards Connery. You've caught me at this point in my life, and I'm going towards uh, Sean Connery. Um, but like I say, when I watched Octopussy, uh, you know, to accompany the podcast, um, I just felt so happy to be in the company of Roger Moore. Um, so comfortable with him, like a family member. Um, but at the moment, <laughs> I'm I'm really interested in Sean Connery. Yeah, that's, that's mm. okay, Connery. That's absolutely <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, that I think as we've been discussing this gradually on the podcast, the go-to answer is, is sometimes Dalton, isn't it? Uh, just because of John's mathematical equation of two two shots, two goals, I suppose. But I, yeah. For me, I agree. Connery, my brain man approach. Connery, yes, yeah, it is <laughs> an autistic approach. Some might say, but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure some of you guys will have reservations with some of the Connery films that I perhaps don't. So, uh, yeah, we, we will we will find out in the in the course of proceedings. But tonight 
we are focusing think, on things with luck. Go on, John. I'll let, I'll let you interrupt. Go on. I, I, sorry. No, sorry. I apologize. It's very rude of me. Um, I think nobody can ever argue that Sean Connery is brilliant. You know, I mean, that, that, is, never in, that is never in doubt, is it? But that's the beauty of Bond, isn't it? Is that it's all subjective. And um, many people can give such a great reasoning to back up their claim, whoever or whatever it may be. Just as I cannot wait for you to uh, defend Die Another Day, Tom. <laughs> oh, I'm counting down the, the other thing I, the I years want to add to that. So we do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> years. <laughs> Part of my interest at the moment in talking about who my favourite Bond is, because it's at the back of my mind, is what kind of Bond do I want next? Yes. And what is a realistically feasible Bond to have next? And well, even I- though I absolutely love and feel related to Roger Moore, I, I can't be looking to his kind of bond at the moment. I don't, as in, I, th- I think I think we need a, a Sean Connery to follow Daniel Craig and get back into the uh, back into it. I believe. But did you think that's what they I think he's the way in? Daniel Craig kind of was bond. trying to do though, perhaps after Die Another Day. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Yeah. yeah, they tried. Well, was <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of spectre, which was like real bottom barrel Roger, but not doing it very well, Roger. And it was a complete mix of styles, wasn't it? But no time to die. I think they're going to have to somehow make it a little bit more serious. Do you think, Chris? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, like just reading around kind of like some of the, the, the some of the, the, you know, the, the, what people are like, I suppose, spoilers. I think there could potentially be some interesting things. But given that, that this is the, the end of, you know, it's clearly this is the last of, of Daniel Craig. He, need, you want, he needs to go out with a bang rather than a whimper. And I think, you know, what's going to be really difficult is the, is the writing. He's pulling off the fact that they've, they've changed so much to try and fit other things in and i think if that doesn't work it's gonna it's gonna fail but you know if you know maybe you know live in hope then that's the great thing about a bond film you always live in hope that the next one is going to be your favorite one or it's going to be the one that blows you away the one that you've never you know there's there's that scene you think oh that's you know you you know it, it gives you goosebumps um can't say i've had that in the recent years but you know <laughs> you live in hope that maybe you know the new one it might pull something out of the bag who knows this decent director you know some interesting writers you know the trailer it looks interesting and that's what you, you, you hope for uh but like i say it's the proof in the pudding is in the writing and i think you know the thorn in the side that is uh Purvis played, <laughs> um you know is still there but you know who knows who knows <laughs> when was the last time you watched a bond and it was as good as you expected or as good as you hoped it will it was uh, re- recently uh living daylights <laughs> it was always a favorite and, oh uh, and i go back yeah to it. i meant it as in when it came out in its first oh, instance right. at the cinema chris yeah yeah i hope it's not that a, yeah yeah <laughs> seeing that and and, and then no <laughs> But no, I, you know, like things like Skyfall. I, 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 when I saw that at the cinema, I enjoyed it, and I think it, a lot of it comes down to expectations. And I think that if you if you get, you know, if you're not a fan of Quantum of Solace, then maybe you go in thinking, you know, whatever's slightly better than Quantum of Solace is fantastic, and that's and I think that's what happened with me. Having gone back and seen Skyfall recently, it's not quite hasn't lived up to those expectations. In the same way, when I watched Spectre for like the second time, it wasn't as bad as I remembered it. 
Mm. Not to say it was wasn't wasn't good. <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't as bad as I remembered it. I'll just uh, hit you with a quote. Actually, uh, I was going to say it a bit later, but Michael G. Wilson, one of the two, of course, main Bond producers with uh, Barbara Broccoli, apparently said this in two thousand eight. We always start out trying to make another from Rush with Love, which of course is uh, this episode we're covering today, and end up with another Thunderball. So I'm I, I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, but uh, oh, he seems to be saying that from Rush with Love is gold <laughs> standard. But surely Thunderball is not the worst in the in the bottom of the barrel, is it, dear me? Unless he was no. focusing more on how difficult. I come to, I've come to love that even more. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it might be. It might be based on that. It might be based on in terms of obviously Thunderball at its time um, was very a very large budget, wasn't it? It was grand scale. They went bigger, bigger, bigger all the time, and I can only presume it's about that, really. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Yeah, and it was all to do with the rights, wasn't it? Again, you know, he's he's you know if he if he's driving the bus, you know, he knows you know he knows when. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we will try and keep it more like. From you know, from us with love and not from the as he said. Was he around then? Um, but yes, I'm sure his father's uh, is he's he saying that from Russia with love is the last time that they were able to kind of exercise some kind of restraint. <laughs> yeah, could well be. Yeah, <laughs> that must be what he's saying. Purvis, Wade, and Craig. <laughs> I'm just the, going through the, the movies Wade. in my head now, thinking, yeah. yeah, they're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, tonight we are discussing, uh, of course, the second Bond film in the series for Rush With Love. And it's another one of our in-depth reviews, as you've probably noticed already, judging by how long we've spent uh, dodging the actual film. But it's uh, Mark Sean Connery's sophomore appearance (laughs) as James Bond. And uh, he and the film are continually regarded as one of the, if not the, strongest entries in the series. In fact, Connery himself has said that it's his personal favourite of the ones he starred in. The film introduced a series of conventions which would become essential elements of the series. So we've got the pre-title sequence, a theme song with lyrics, and even the line, James Bond will return or James Bond will be back uh, in the end credits. It was the first film to feature Bond's regular arch enemy, Blofeld, who turned out to be his brother, Inspector. I'll keep saying that until people don't uh, no longer <laughs> realise how much of a massive, uh, ridiculous plot twist that was. Uh, it also had the first appearance from Desmond <laughs> Llewellyn as Q, and uh, a role, of course, that he would play all the way into the late 90s uh, through to The World Is Not Enough. Uh, he was only absent in Live and Let Die. In terms of the film itself, Bond is lured into a trap by Spectre to procure the Lecter device from the Soviets in Istanbul. However, in fact... Despite the title, Bond doesn't actually get to go to Russia in the films. We don't really see any Russia in the film. We just see a bit of a Soviet-controlled Czechoslovakia. So then we've got Smirsch defector Rosa Kleb, which is part of the uh, Russian Secret Service back then. She's defected from Smirsch to Spectre. She heads up the plot using uh, Tatiana Romanova uh, as bait for Bond. Cue chess matches, thrilling train rides, brilliantly directed fight scenes, and a race against time across some more eye-catching locations in Europe. From Western with Love, as I'm sure we'll all agree on and discuss further today, it's a very much a spy thriller, as opposed to perhaps the more fantastical 
action hero centered films that uh, we see nowadays. It's began the real Bond boom of the 60s, sealing the character's place in cinema history forever. Krilenko. So he's back. Another Bulgarian they use as a killer. Take a look. You should remember him. This man kills for pleasure. James Bond, that notorious, amazing Dr. No secret agent is back. And half the world is out to kill him. As he fits his murderous talents against the Iron Curtain and its velvet women. Well, I'll tell you something, Coltoni. You're one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen. I think my mouth is too big. No, it's the right size. For me, that is. From Russia with love comes Tatiana. Fate for the trap. From the four corners of the world come the men and women who play a deadly, dangerous game of espionage. Do not be alarmed, my friend. We will make you as comfortable as possible. Ali Karim Bey, head of Station T, Turkey. Krasno Gramsci, codename Grant. Chief executioner of Spectre. My orders are to kill you and deliver the lector. All I do, it's my business. M of British Secret Service. The woman called Rosa Klebb, playing a double, double cross. Klebb. Romano, the door. Romano! From Russia with love, they dance for him. They yearn for him. They die for him. From Zagreb to Sofia. From Venice to Istanbul. From Paris to London. Agent 007 cuts an inimitable path through the palaces and boudoirs of espionage. James, you're hurting me. I'll be worse than that if you don't tell me. I'm doing this under orders, I know. What are they? Even if you kill me. I can say nothing. Just uh, briefly, guys, tell me, tell me your relationship with with the film, uh, John. You go first. Um, it was one of those films that I collected the videos randomly. Um, I'd seen some of them on ITV, but there was no specific logic to how I was picking the films. I was just picking up on a buy one get one free on Woolworths, and I think from Russia with Love might have been actually the last one I picked up out of all of them. Um, but I always vividly remember from the first time I watched it, loving it. Um, I, and, and I think that's quite odd for me because if the first films I watched were Moonraker, Live and Let Die, very Roger Moore based films, very, very whimsical, very quirky, funny, lighthearted. And, and, and from Rush With Love isn't that really, but I always felt the minute I watch this, I have always just clicked with it. 
even as a young kid, like as an 11-year-old, because I've heard some criticisms from some people that it can be a bit slow. For me, I've never felt that. I've always felt invested in this story right from the beginning. Um, and I will leave that there. So I've got something to talk about later. <laughs> yeah, the, we, we won't be short on things to talk about. <laughs> um, Chris, how about you? I know it's uh, <laughs> early. You did say, I think in a previous podcast, you always go for the, the first three Conneries as your sort of go-to text in terms of your favourite James Bond films. Yeah, I think, you know... Th- Again, similar experience of, you know, the, if you wanted to watch something fun and escapism, something exciting, I'd often lean towards, you know, Roger Moore's, those early um, Bond films, you know, the early Connery ones were always kind of the grown-up ones. They were always much more, you know, they always seemed to be kind of, you know, there were more the thrillers rather than the action films. And I think that when I was younger, I was slightly put off by that. In the same way that when we watched Dr. No, I was slightly put off by the fact that it didn't have all the kind of comforting things of, you know, the gun barrel and the, the score was slightly different. It had a title sequence, but it wasn't the same. And, you know, John Barry was sort of involved, but not involved. So it kind of always threw me. So, again, like From Russia With Love was was always seen as the... the yeah, the, the the more mature end of of Bond, and and that was one. And I completely agree with John that that you, you kind of go in with those expectations that it might be a little bit dry. You know, it's an older one, so the pacing might not be off. But no, it, it absolutely isn't. I think it has aged really well. I think he also has, you know, an absolutely. You know, I think Terence Young just you know, it adds a layer of class to these productions and in, in his choices that are almost timeless and even more, you know, and I think that kind of mid-century, you know, you see through, you know, the fashions sort of came back when Mad Men was, was popular on TV and it kind of looks more modern now than, it, than some of the, the, yeah. the, you know, kind of the, yeah. the, the Daniel Craig ones, you know, it, it is an incredibly classy production um, like I say, it, it, it treats its audience with respect. <clears throat> you know, it's got a cracking, you know, story that's interesting. You know, you go from, you know, intrigue to, you know, some of the best action that actually Bond does in terms of set piece, you know, just the way it's directed, whether it's the fight on the train or the bit with the helicopter and all the way through it, it's, it's just has this luxurious score and this feel of, of tr- true escapism. It feels like, you were looking at it through a champagne glass. I think it's, it is for me, the balance of bond being escapism, but exciting, but also not treating like an idiot. It kind of, it hits the apex with, with something like this. Yeah. I don't disagree with anything you've said there, Chris. I think watching it as a, as a 10 year old on a Sunday afternoon, it perhaps wasn't the ones me, Harry and math and James, my brothers went to immediately. But watching it with a fresh pair of eyes, particularly becoming a cinema geek as you get older, it's found a new love for me, and we will go into that. But Harry, what what did you think? Did you? I can't remember whether we watched it as much as the others when we were growing up, really. Well, exactly. That's it. I was going to say it's it isn't one that we'd go to as children. It's not necessarily one of the more child friendly bonds. Um, It's not all adventure and um, you know huge set pieces and lay you know a, a base for the villain to be in and all that There's, it's much more it's pretty you know it's a, on a smaller scale and as chris said it's you know it's more of a thriller really um and i don't think 
<clears throat> as children or as a child, I, I, you know, it's not one that I would go to, but as I've matured, it's one that I'm re- really loving watching back and getting into and respecting enormously. Um, and also seeing how it, how it, <clears throat> It develops from Doctor No. I think that's a really interesting relationship that it has. And it's kind of like what you know. You've always known it's one of the classics. You tell people it's one of the classics. A bit like you know, maybe you know, a musician. There's always a classic album that everyone knows is their classic, but you don't necessarily l- listen to it until later in life. It's it's similar to that for me. So yeah, I've always known it's a classic, and perhaps I'm discovering that more latterly than when I was younger. Yeah, you, you worry that some some of the classics, the sort of trendy choices for the favourites in the series, don't always quite live up to your your gut. You know, if you were honest and you were being honest with yourself, you don't always like them. Um, I don't think that I never thought that's the case with From Rush with Love, but I was slightly worried going into this episode, thinking there's nothing particularly silly about it and there's nothing particularly bad about it that we can criticise. So I was slightly worried that you know there isn't an awful lot to dissect particularly and argue over. But because uh, as soon as I started watching it and I was falling in love with it all over again, I just thought we can talk about this. We can talk about how much we appreciate this film. And perhaps, like you say, we've alluded to, with the new direction, whatever direction they take, they, they, they could do to have a look at this film. And, and Michael G. Wilson said that himself, but I think he could perhaps do to, uh, to listen to some of his own advice maybe. But uh, <laughs> that's uh, me being controversial again. Yeah. So, John, um, I believe uh, a new regular section of the show uh, is is our James Bond quiz, and uh, <laughs> you might have a few questions, uh, as it were, on on from Rush with Love. Yeah. So, obviously, we've been doing um, five questions each for each section we've done. Uh, we can guarantee a new winner this time because the first winner was Mr. Robert Parker <laughs> and the second winner was um, Mr. Matt Pickup loser. and they're not here. Um, <laughs> we could all score zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we could. Yeah, that's Four draw. Um, I, I like to have a buzzer. Like, I like to have a little comment as a buzzer. Um, in keeping with what Tom says, I found this one quite difficult to think of because there isn't that much humour in this film. But one, one quote that I have said throughout my life because I was always obsessed with it when I heard it the first time is the way that Kevin Bay says Krilenko so uh, so that's what I want as our buzzer today so I'm going to answer the answer and I just want you in your best Turkish accent Krilenko so uh, Mexican accent so if you know the answer (laughs) buzz in it was yeah Mexican Mexican (laughs) Turkish yeah yeah let's see best of five so number one so what nation does Kronstein represent at chess? Krilenko. Tom? I'm going to go for Czechoslovakia. That is correct. Oh, yes. Good shout. Bit, bit, bit of a bonus question, not not actually one, but does anyone remember uh, who the opposition Mikado... Krilenko. It was Canada, yeah, yeah. Oh, I just couldn't think for Cronstein. <laughs> okay, number two. Whose mouth is the escape hatch for Krilenko? Krilenko. Go on, Tom. It is the actress Anita Ekberg. Uh, correct. Correct, Tom, yeah. <laughs> There's trivia about that, isn't there, as well, isn't it? A Saltzman production or... 
properly. Did, yeah. It was indeed, yeah. Yeah. It's the first bit of uh, self-promotion that the series later became fully reliant on. Uh, of course, Bond with his famous... Uh, <laughs> was that Heineken? In uh, <laughs> Other beers are available. Yeah, in, in, in a beach in Skyfall. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Anyway, back to the quiz. Uh, number three. Um, so what does Bond order for his breakfast along with yoghurt and coffee very black haven't got a Kirilenko I think I might know it but I'm, <laughs> no, I don't have the guts sorry. to say the I word I just remember the yeah. black coffee yeah very strong <laughs> Great fruit. right I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a clue it's green something Kirilenko Tom yeah I, I didn't that was the bit I didn't I think it's I think it's green figs Green Figs is correct. <laughs> and Thomas takes his first victory of the series. <laughs> well done, Tom. <laughs> um, but we'll just do the last two. Still doing um, questions, yeah. <laughs> what name does Tati... It's like deal or no deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what name does... <laughs> what name does Tatiana travel under on the Orient Express? I know the surname, but I can't think of the... Can't for the life of me remember yeah, the, the first name. I don't want to read my cribs. My crib. I bet the audience is just everything at the radio now, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go on, John. Uh, it was Caroline Somerset. Oh, oh. Caroline. Mr. and Mrs. Somerset. Yeah. <laughs> and the final one. How many seconds does it take the poison shoe to kill Kronstein? Kurilenko. Harry. Uh, Twelve. 12 seconds oh. is correct, yes. Brilliant. 12 seconds, check. So, uh, Thomas wins. <laughs> really, 007 quiz will return at some point. Very good. <laughs> the next episode. <laughs> Thank you, John. That was superb. We now move into the, the background to the film. And of course, as we know, this was the second James Bond film from the Egan Fleming adaptations. After the huge success of Doctor No, the producers doubled their budget of the second installment from $1 million to $2 million. And uh, Sean Connery was given a $100,000 bonus on top of his $54,000 salary. That uh, might not seem much uh, for a major star in a film today, uh, but it was an awful lot of money at the time. And uh, yeah. I'm sure it's not as much as uh, the 100 million plus uh, reportedly going Daniel Craig's way for No Time to Die, but I'm sure it was a decent amount for Sean in 1962. Yeah, so, we, we, you know, without cutting to the chest too much, and it's a massive, massive topic, um, what, are our, what are our thoughts on Sean Connery as James Bond? It just like, and I think it was, was it, was it Salzburg said it, it was like the way he moved was one of the reasons he cast him. Like the way he could walk, kind of like pounce across the room like a panther. He has this sort mm. of this, this, you know, like yeah, it's like predatory, but a glide. It's a strange. He has so much presence, and you know, like in those early f- f- few films when he's and the suits are cut so nicely. You know, he looks like and obviously like Terence Young told him to sleep in them, didn't he? For was he productive? Oh, really? <laughs> he's. I just think he's he's great. He's he's great in this. He's he's he's. Um, 
it's quintessential. It's like you can tell that he's he's comfortable in the role. You know, he's got he's got plenty to do. He's not kind of just wandering in and kind of spouting out kind of plot or, you know, kicking people. You know, he's got there's this, this real meat to the bones. I think in this, it's his performances. It's one of his best. I I, I think. I agree with Chris. Um, I think you know a lot of it's to do with his image in terms of not just his looks, but the wardrobe that goes with it, with the suits. Um, he really gets that image right. And I think, yeah, the way he moves across the room with a bit of a, he is calm, confident, but always snoop looking around, always glancing around, which is, um, which is great. And I, one thing I really started to appreciate when watching from Russia with love this time was how you'd kind of make an assumption, maybe because of the most recent films that spying is quite an ugly, dirty business. But with Sean Connery and with other Bonds, I, th- I think it's really interesting the way that this spy hangs around in, you know, he goes to these amazing hotels, these he wears these great suits. And, you know, there's there's a bit in From Russia Love where he tips the waiter. And I just think he perfectly, or the concierge or someone, he, you know, he gives, the, he gives them a wad of money. And I think just f- for the escapism, you, that's who you'd want to be as a ki- kid. Um that's someone who mixes in those circles, but secretly is undercover doing something massive. Um, and I think, yeah, I think Sean really nails that, given that he had, I know it's, we say it's not easy to follow Sean Connery. You know, it's not easy to follow a different Bond, you know, whoever's cast as the next Bond. But in the same, you know, in the same light, he was the first. He had to come up with it all himself. He had to um, put this all on screen and he did it so, so well. Absolutely, yeah. It's yeah. I know Mark Moore's like a big Harry. fan of show, show don't tell, isn't he? In terms of acting, and Connery's got got the show, hasn't he? In terms of you believe he's James Bond immediately. Uh, you think this guy when he turns up uh, in the, from his first scene, obviously not his uh, his double, which actually isn't him. But uh, yeah, when he comes into it, you, you just this is my James Bond, whichever age you are, I think, and. That's that's half the battle, and you take it for granted perhaps too much these days. And sorry, just to add to that before John says, as, as well as him being clean cut in his suits, I'm sure right now you can picture what he looks like in his suit right after the fight with Grant. Ab- like his suit is cut open, the sweat, the hair down his forehead, and it's, there's a similar image in Goldfinger after his fought odd job. He also has that image, really, the sort of the ripped up suit <clears throat> and the, the shiny forehead. And I think like that shows his intensity as well on a on a different level. I think for me, this is my favourite Connery performance, um, and I think the reason for that I'm not not saying necessarily it's his best. I know a lot of people give a lot of plaudits to Goldfinger, and I do think he's very, very, very charismatic in that film. I need to say this right. I think what Chris said before about this being a thriller is a very good point. To me, the focus of this film is not James Bond. The focus of this film is Spectre. And Mm. I think what Connery does is a very nuanced, subtle performance that he's actually completely oblivious of what's going on. And um, it's quite a human... I think it's quite a human performance. Um, And without harking on about what's going on recently... um, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. But I will do. Um, I think... <laughs> <laughs> will you? Yeah. I think this is actually how how to go about personalizing a performance without basic, making it completely self-centered. And I think that this is the perfect way of doing it. Um, it's understated, a lot of it. It's understated. It's not over the top. He very rarely gets ridiculously angry until he does his trademark hitting a woman, which is one of the downsides of Sean. Um, <laughs> yeah. But having said that, I love it. It's it's mm. a brilliant performance. I think it shows that it's not a bond. It's not about him. It's about twenty minutes before he even comes on screen, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. a long time before before Connery comes on screen. He's very much the pawn in the operation as opposed to the focus of the film. It's driven by the story, isn't it, particularly? So because even though Bond is a crucial part of the plot himself, it's not done all from his point of view until he's in it, really. The audience are always looking at it from Bond's point of view, but particularly when you see Grant protecting him and and shooting people to, to try and save him from being killed himself, that that sort of shows again that the audience should always be rooting for Bond, but as a cinematic um, enterprise, yeah, I think Spectre's the main focus. Particularly, you get the John pa- the John Barry Q, which is a massive part of the film. Actually, I haven't seen it again. Perhaps the first time in the series that a villain has had sort of music that you think, oh, not not just the villain, all of the villains. Uh, from, yeah, from f- pretty much the first scene, isn't it? We get that sense that. Spectre are angry, uh, particularly if you watch it immediately after Doctor No, and there is a reference to that, which I'd completely forgotten about. Um, and we go from there, like Chris was saying, you know, it is it is all dependent on the story, and although we'll go into how that the, they had to shift and frame and rewrite many times and re-edit it and swap scenes around, it works beautifully as a story from start to finish that you believe makes sense as a film, not just as a Bond film. The director, of course, we have mentioned him already, Terence Young. He directed the first two James Bond films, this and Doctor No. He didn't want to do Goldfinger. I think he moved on to something else, so Guy Hamilton took the helm for that. But he came back for Thunderball. He he did actually turn out a lot of money to continue with Goldfinger, but he was obviously inundated with offers coming off the back of these two films, as you, as you would. Uh, apparently also... He also turned down the chance to direct For Your Eyes Only and Never Say Never Again. We keep mentioning that film, don't we? Uh, it keeps going on. It's like a bad smell. It uh, won't go away, no. Wow. But, uh, yeah. I think, obviously, like we said on the Octopussy episode, Eon were desperate to make it as Bond as they could because they knew the threats of Sean Connery as, as Bond in Never Say Never Again. Conversely, the Never Say Never Again producers thought, well, we need someone who knows what they're doing, perhaps. And Terence Young was the original and possibly the best. Uh, we will 
perhaps do an episode on the directors and, and where they all rank. But uh, yeah, so he, he he only ever ended up doing uh, three, uh, three of the first four. But I think pretty much everyone involved in the film had a, a very, very high opinion of him. So I think Terence's um, contribution for the, to the film in the kind of salvage situation where we had to get something done. He knew, he knew what he was trying to do and uh, succeeded uh, fantastically well. I love Terence. I really did. He was just great. I rate Terence Young as one of the best directors I've ever worked with. And he always took charge and completely took care of us. He called everybody my children. He said, come along, children, come along. And not only did he call you my child, but he behaved as if you were his child. It was very comforting. I have to go back again to Terence, who was the director and the leader of the whole thing, who was a wonderful personality and managed to instill into everybody an enthusiasm and a joy for making the film. I think Terence's um, contribution for the, to the film and the, the kind of um, stamp and measure of the films is... Uh, I don't think anybody gets closer. Yeah, that was uh, obviously Sean Connery, Martine Bezik, Aliza Gure, so the two uh, gypsy girls, uh, and Peter Hunt, of course. What do, what do you think uh, of Terence Young as a director? I know we're analysing quite technical th- things in the film. I don't know, when you, when you sort of watch, watch documentaries about uh, him and the films at the time, you do sort of get an insight that he was... I don't know, very, very of the time, quite pioneering, listened to Peter Hunter's editor and just got on with it. He was even injured, of course, on the shoot, uh, which we'll go into, but he just he just got on with it, almost as if I think I've heard people talk of him as a bit of a James Bond type character himself. Yeah, I, I, I love him. Um, I think I've read some stories about how he really tried to create a party atmosphere on his sets. So he... Um, like one of his main focuses was creating a really fun atmosphere and uh, so people really buy into what he's doing and i think that that i think that that's obviously really effective because actually his films don't come across as the fun party atmosphere films but it it sh- it works because everyone <laughs> buys into what he's doing um he's very uh, he's very hitchcockian um, yeah, there's a definitely. real kind of. I'm quite sure he must like be a massive Hitchcock fan. There's there's tension. It's all very tension building. Um, camera shots, like earring shots of uh, stuff going on, building up with the music. Um, the helicopter scene is surely inspired by North by Northwest. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it, he admitted that actually. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, but having said, fair play to him because at the end of the day, I, I could run off all my favourite films and I could tell you a film that they've all been inspired by and they've referenced something else. We're all big Christopher Nolan yeah, fans, and uh, you, you look at that—you look at that first scene of The Dark Knight Rises, and it's got "License to Kill" written all over it, hasn't it? You know, it's just one of those. That's that's all right. Um, yeah, I, I think he does a cracking job. I think it's his best directed film, actually. I think some of that's helped by the fact he's got a far bigger budget than Doctor No, and in a lot of ways, it's like he does a lot of the things he does in Doctor No at a grander scale, um, and I like that about him. Uh, and I prefer his direction here to Thunderball. I think my slight criticism with Thunderball is is that 
where is he, uh, as you were saying, Tom, about uh, we, the audience, are with Bond and we're on that journey with him. Bond is unknowing what's going on in Thunderball, but he's so far down the line. We're waiting for him to catch up. We know the bomb's in Bahamas. We know it's in Nassau and it's like, and it's going to, and we're so far down the line, we're waiting for Bond to catch up. Whereas here, we know that Spectre are involved but we don't actually know how that's going to pan out. And um, I think that creates that perfect set of tension there. So, yeah, great, great stuff. Yeah, tension's a word we keep mentioning, and you can't think of many of the Bond films where you'd use that word. And it is, like you say, a genuine uh, spy thriller. What do you think, Harry, Going looking back at it again of uh, Terence Young? Yeah, well, I like uh, John's mention and how wise to it all, James Bond is in the film, I think, is really, really good. Bond arrives, you know, straight after Dr. No, and it, it feels like he's kind of confident, but not, not happy-go-lucky, but he feels like the job's done. And, like, when he gets that suitcase, you know, the gadget, he's like, I don't, you know, I don't think we'll need that on this assignment. Oh, glorious. Um, you know, he, he says that. And then and then the way, though, that Terence Young brings it to – there's a point on the train where it's quite clear that Bond – doesn't know what's going on. Like Bond is, you yeah. know, all the confidence <laughs> he had at the start of the film is yeah. out the window kind of. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I just like how, you know, there's only w- one year between this and Doctor No. It just feels like Young had that ability to just continue on. I then have, like you said, double the budget, but build it and continue telling the story. Um, and I think he does that, um, yeah, really, really well. Chris, uh, what what did you make of uh, Terence Young? Yeah, I completely. You know, I think he. I think he. When you watch some of the documentaries, I think he's as, as important in the creation of Connery's Bond as, as anyone. I think he was the one that lived the Bond lifestyle. You know, with the champagne and the the casinos. You know, he he obviously he was he was very comfortable in that. And when Connery was cast, and Fleming had his. You know, I was a little bit worried that we'd got this kind of gruff Scott to play this very sophisticated stylist mm-hmm. character. It was young that basically sent him, sent him to his tailors, got him to you know, got him in those suits and told him, you know, you, you know, to get make sure he's comfortable in the suit. He said, you know, you need to start sleeping in those suits, and I think that shows. And I think you see him in those documentaries. Where he sat, you know, next to the uh, the pool, you know, <laughs> he's kind of. I, I think that actually, <laughs> Terence Young was was a big impact on on that creation. And I think, um, and again, it's that 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 you know, there's, there's it doesn't feel. And I think during that that period, unless you were kind of those those big name directors, big name studio directors, often there was a, a kind of a, a workman like kind of approach to filmmaking because you were a hired hand. You were you know, the script was written and then they hired a director. You came in, you directed the scene, then you left and they edited it and then they released it. You didn't really have that much involvement in it. But I think that that, that Young was, you know, let's like say working with sort of Peter Hunt to, to work in, I suppose, quite revolutionary sort of techniques and making it, you know, like very dramatic and very kind of exciting. And I think, yeah, I, I really enjoy all his 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 films. Um, and I think uh, I think he was a, he was a great director. And I think you know, I, I, I sort of of all the directors who've sort of come back, I kind of hold him in the same kind of light as like um, 
uh, Martin Campbell, you know, someone who really understands the material, understands how to direct these sets pieces and understands what Bond is, is re- really about, which isn't necessarily about action or the jokes. It's about constructing a really great adventure, thriller, action film. And I think, you know, I think Terence Young definitely stands, you know, uh, kind of heads and shoulders above some of the directors they've had in the past who haven't quite understood the balance, who've maybe gone to too much into, you know, the 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 the, the comedy or trying to make it a bit too gritty. But yeah, I, I think I think Young is I think I don't think you you can I can't imagine, you know, Connery and and what followed without Terence Young. I think he had a huge impact mm. on that creation of that character. It's amazing, isn't it, to think if you didn't have this sort of amalgamism of Connery, Terence Young, Ian Fleming, of course, who thought himself as a bit of a playboy, he was on set. You know, if you didn't have all these these sort of elements going on at the same time, even John Barry, which you know we'll talk about him later, it's just an amazing, happy coincidence, I suppose, that they were all able to make these films that were pioneering. You can't sort of talk about James Bond now without sort of going into cliches and everything, but in order for something to have cliches, they've got to have been pioneering in the first place, uh, particularly in the early days of creating this character. And in some ways, watching it again, I did think that perhaps it was a, had a little bit more humour than I thought, and it also had a little bit more pace than I thought. And that linked it for me more more with Goldfinger, perhaps, than Dr. No. And even though, of course, he wasn't directing that, it just sits so nicely as a progression, like you say, Chris, those first three in particular do seem to be part of a a wider series, not a trilogy, but certainly not standalone films, and and not just because of the references to Spectre and the Revenge and and those sort of things. So in terms of the, the story... Uh, obviously, at this stage, as I said, the films were still adaptations from the fairly contemporary Ian Fleming no- novels, considering I think his the book was written in 1957. Did you know it actually the book uh, has a comma? So it's from Russia, comma, with love. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> wow. A bit like the original title of uh, A View to a Kill, of course. They changed, didn't they? It was from A View to a Kill. And I think, yeah, they thought it was a bit clumsy, but... That was the book. If you're enjoying Really 007, why not follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? Look us up at Really 007 Pod. If you do not, you will be shot. Yeah, one of the main reasons they chose to adapt this second uh, was because JFK actually, well, quite famously named it in his top 10 books of all time. Uh, I think it was in Time magazine he did that. And therefore, I think Cobby Broccoli was one of those people who, oh, yes, we've got to we've got to think about things like that. And certainly JFK was very popular at the time. And tragically, actually, it was it was the la- apparently it was the last film JFK ever saw before he was assassinated in Dallas. So in terms of world events, all this kind of thing was going on at the height of Bond. And <laughs> Fle- Fleming, of course, at the time, he was still alive. He was able to visit the set. I think apparently he, he had a cameo uh, on the train uh, leaving Istanbul. He did, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was a lovely bit of trivia. I was expecting that the quiz, John, actually. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he... I think he that's unconfirmed, though, isn't it? The one that, is it like the train station? Yeah, I think... Yeah, yeah, apparently he's one of the farmers by the train station. 
Oh, right, that's different to the one I Is it the last film <laughs> yeah. he saw as well? Is it the last film he influenced? Yes, I was going to say, Harry. Yeah, he yeah. Uh, unfortunately died. I think he he was on the sets of Goldfinger uh, and he died before the premiere. So I think he may have seen the film in its rough cut perhaps at some stage. But yeah, so it's it's a shame, of course. But like I said, when you have all these people involved at the same time, I'm sure he helped steer it in more of the direction he wanted to. So his novel was a Cold War thriller. Um, we'll mention that. We actually mentioned that a bit with Octopussy, didn't we? Um, amazing how long the Cold War has been going on for. Um, but the producers replaced the Soviets' undercover agency Smirsch. They were originally the, the, the antagonist, uh, really, in part of the, in the film. But they replaced it more with uh, Spectre, who are just baddies, aren't they, basically? Uh, crime syndicates so as to avoid the controversial political overtones. If you can think about the time again, early 60s, you've got the absolute height of the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis coming up and all that. So I think uh, Broccoli in particular didn't really want to step on the Russian toes. (laughs) If you look back at a lot of Hollywood films in the period, right up until the 90s, Russians were always the baddies, weren't they? And I think Bond's treatment of that was slightly more subtle perhaps than... uh, Say Gary Oldman on uh, Air Force One, but that was set after the uh, <laughs> set after the end of the Cold War. So that's how they got away with that. Yeah. So yeah, the original screenwriter was uh, Len Dayton, who was another uh, spy novel writer. Uh, I believe he wrote the Ipcris file, which I think uh, well the Michael F- Michael Caine film. Chris is a massive fan of that, aren't you? I am, yes. I, it's like, I've seen seen as a bit of an antidote to, to sort of the bond. You know, it's very you know set in London. It's very uh, get to see. He's very much a home bird. The, the, the main character with his um, with his maybe it isn't a quiche that he makes. It's um, it's something. Uh, there's a lot of cooking <laughs> in that in that film. <laughs> we'll have a quiche special, uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you get that, you're you're a sad Bond fan. How to charm twenty five year old girls with quiche? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Ibris Far was a was another spy thriller that's involved quiche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so apparently Len Dayton actually he went to Istanbul for the first on location shooting with uh, Harry Saltzman, the other producer with Albert uh, Cubby Broccoli, and also Terence Young was there. So he went with those two, but. He was replaced. They, they got rid of him because there was lack of progress getting the scripts uh, formulated, apparently. So he went. They brought back the three writers of Doctor No in different forms. So Johanna Harwood. Uh, we had Richard Maybaum, who we'll get into more detail a bit, and Berkeley Mather. Apparently Mather just did uncredited rewrites, and there's, there's quite a few rewrites, which is unusual in a film that, that appears to be so slick. Apparently... Joanna Harwood mm. was credited more for the ad- ad- adaptation uh, of the novel, but her suggestions were yeah carried over into the, the Dick Mayband script, which is the main script, I think. Uh, she said that she uh, had been a screenwriter of several of Saltzman's projects, and her screenplay for this did follow the novel closely, but I think Terence Young was constantly involved in trying to rewrite to, to make it into a film, basically. And uh, she she left uh, after that, and I don't think she returned. So uh, again, we we will mention in a No Time to Die episode that Phoebe Waller Bridge, of course, is a big hoo ha 
that she's involved and it's great that a woman's on the writing team but back to the very first bond and this one you've, you've got a woman which is pretty remarkable uh, particularly in, the, in that time in the 60s so yeah dick maybaum he um he worked on nearly all the bond scripts in some form or another for 37 years from right th- from dr no right through to license to kill amazingly which he co-wrote with uh, michael g wilson Wow. Uh, the only exceptions to that were You Only Live Twice, which I think was Roald Dahl, amazingly, uh, Live and Let Die, yeah. and Moonraker. Now, he said the real trick of writing the Bond scripts was to find the villain's caper. Now, he's also credited with adding humour to the series, which isn't really fa- found in the books. I, looking back on this one, there was a bit more humour than, than I remembered. It's kind of famous, isn't it, that Gold, everyone says, oh, Goldfinger's the one where they added all the, the quips and everything. But Bond at least was willing to sort of give the odd quip. We'll, we'll come to them in the, the course of the film, but yeah. it, it it certainly wasn't a stiff a stiff sort of atmosphere going through this film. I I thought there was that sort of, I don't know, almost a pleasant underlying sense that of dark humour, particularly in the, the warmth of the relationship between Bond and Karen Bay, but in the film overall. So, yeah, so that's, that's Dick Maybaum. He... He kept uh, doing rewrites as the filming progressed. Red Grant, Donovan Red Grant, played by, of course, Robert Shaw, he was added to the Istanbul scenes just prior to the, the, the film crew's trip to Turkey. So he wasn't even meant to be in those scenes. But they thought it, it brought the Spectre plot more into focus. And that's where, of course, they added in Grant was always there. And he, of course, saves Bond, Bond's life in the gypsy camp area. A late change during shooting uh, involved Grant killing the, well, the I'd say the, one of the most conspicuous-looking spies ever, the guy with big glasses, big moustache, and beret. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he, he was killed by Grant instead of Bond, which the original script had. Um, and then Bond, of course, just finds him dead. I don't know whether he's got a name, that character, actually. Did anyone pick up a name? I don't know. Russian agent, quite a, yeah, quite a memorable guy, though. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Very, <it>? yes, yeah. <laughs> what a genius little move that is, though. Like, it's, yeah, I agree, John. Yes, it's subtle. Yeah, it's, it's it really adds such intrigue. Yeah, great little move that. Yeah, and it gives Grant the upper hand. Yeah, yeah. We we see him actually doing his job as a spy pretty well. Whereas, and later, of course, the Somerset, who we've mentioned in the quiz. Um, and I think it's Nash. Nash, sorry, he he must have killed Nash off screen in order to to get on board, which is almost scary. Which you, you wouldn't do that. I don't think you, that would happen in a Bond film. There, that that happens in a thriller, doesn't it? Where perhaps the audience uh, have to sort of mm. make up their own mind about it and realize that he's getting on with this without us seeing it, and he's he's now in pole position to sort of take on Bond. For the for the last quarter of the film, that was quite different by the end. I think Maybaum, he added the the two chases, the, the helicopter, first of all, which I've said is inspired by North by Northwest and the speedboat chase. And he he changed the location of Bond and Kleb's final sort of fight battle scene. Uh, it was meant to originally in Paris, but he changed it to Venice. So not quite sure why these decisions were made.
we get to the film itself. My word, we've done we've done okay, haven't we? This, uh, of course, starts with the gun barrel sequence, and yes, there was a, there was a gun barrel sequence in Doctor No, and in fact, they actually used the same one uh, for from Rush with Love, and of course, it's uh, Bob Simmons, the stuntman, who was standing in his bonds. So they just used the same same footage, but apparently, they added some blood effects to the to, to the to the gun barrel. But uh, it's the first, of course, with the the proper John Barry uh, version, the arranged version of the Bond theme, which I think makes quite a difference. The pre-title sequence then, as we've said, this is the first film in this series to feature the now legendary pre-title sequence. But again, it wasn't it wasn't meant to happen. It was a it was Peter Hunt, the editor, and Terence Young. They they thought the scene with the the Red Grant training sequence was so crucial. Uh, that the audience would want to see it before to know what what uh, the um, Spectre were going on uh, as part of their plan. So even though it is actually quite short, isn't it, this scene? But it, it it's become so successful. There's been been one in nearly every Bond film since, and of course now they're almost a big mini film in, in themselves, particularly when they're their own missions. But what a great way to to to, to open the second film in your series is that you know it's. The, the the hero being hunted down, you know, and, yeah. and killed. That's 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 how the film opens. It's like, hang on a minute, messing with expectations. I think, uh, and it's also you know incredibly tense, like really well directed, you know, and, and incredibly violent, you know, with the watch, you know, the grotting, and 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 yeah, it is. And again, it, it's <laughs> it's nice to to kind of you know like that. It's really. Uh, it's still it's still almost quite shocking you know the, the the level of violence in there you know you don't you you don't when you say violence nowadays you often think you know it's just about blood and guts but the the noise the, the way it's edited you know and again it sets it up as this you know you you just see it as this this scene and it's actually just being played out and also you've got a question kind of you know spectra preferred to literally kill someone in their training you know that poor guy he got murdered yeah. just for a training exercise <laughs> so expensive. <laughs> i think wow <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. maybe it was the task do you think they wrote on. that in the terms and conditions of his contract <laughs> yeah. you may die <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah just, yeah, just sign just sign <laughs> at the bottom <laughs> Oh, so I'm putting a bond mask on me. Don't put a bond mask yeah. on me. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit silly if you have a mask on, only to sort of take it off. But um, it works cinematically, doesn't it? I think. I think it's it, it's so it's so pleasing the even the noise when the mask comes off. It's pleasing because, for one thing, you know, a few bond isn't dead. But also, like you say, it doubles up as that ruthlessness that they are prepared to kill one of their own. Yeah, I, I was—I don't know what it will have been like at the time of when it came out from Russia with Love, but like Chris is saying, how um, immediately the the hero from the first film is being hunted down, and I think it's like amazing how immediately when you see Grant, like there's that noticeable similarity and yet contrast with Bond, as in. You know, he's moving like Bond, but he's creeping up on Bond, kind of. He's, like I've said before, he's got the upper hand. But then even just the reveal of the bright hair, that contrast, you know, this this guy represents something different um, and is an opponent, you know, not to be meddled with. And so good. Like, like you said, it's only, three, it's only three minutes 13, this opening scene. Mm. And what a setup, um, just for the sake of Grant more than anything else. 
um, yeah, I think it's tremendous, tremendously put together. It, it shows the uh, Grant as the darker side of Bond, doesn't it? Harry? Yeah. That's probably mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. It is. But the, this front first scene, I mean, I the first time I watched it, I thought, flipping heck, is James Bondill or something? Because he looks so pasty. And then yeah. you yeah, realize, just, yeah. you know, <laughs> and then you realize. Like the Ventura from Magic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, he's, he looks like that's so pasty. And then you realise, yeah, they've gone all this trouble just to put a mask on him. Um, but what I do find with it is this scene tells you everything and it tells you nothing. It's amazing. Mm. It, uh, it it sets you up with intrigue that these guys are out for Bond. And yet it tells you nothing about the plot. There's no exposition to it. It's All it's doing is it's in the scene in itself just sets it up. This is going to be a revenge film. But we, we're not going to go into the logistics of how that's going to be. We're just going to hit you on the head with an incredibly violent scene um, starting off. And, I mean, I, I see that your next point's Red Grant, but we can go on about Red... I mean, for me, Red Grant is the greatest henchman, which I mean, I'm going to call him the henchman in this Yeah, film. he's the greatest he's a bit henchman. more than a henchman, isn't he? But he's not quite the main dastardly he villain, is he? He's, he's working for someone, isn't he? It's that kind of thing. Even though he is the main foe, he's the greatest henchman in Bond history for me personally. And um, because he has got the brawn of our job or of Jaws, but he's got the brains and he's got the charisma as well. Yeah. And you look at the line that of, of how many copies we have had of this guy we uh we had was it max is he called max in you only live twice you basically did nothing apart from was blofeld the keys uh, bodyguard mm-hmm. yeah and then we have stamper so good who was hey, basically stamper stop yelling in my ear yeah uh yeah he was just a 90s version of red grant <laughs> we had necross who was the 80s version of red grant <laughs> yeah. although he had an awesome theme tune and, and exploding milk bottles so there was a bit of an upgrading to the last bit. funnily enough though you mentioned <laughs> a friend at school like, you know a contemporary of mine maybe i haven't seen from russia with love but he would always talk about Stamper and be really, <laughs> like, as in, like, what a scary character. I genuinely find him really scary. Wow. I mean, yeah, I find that quite surprising, but it shows you how we all yeah. interpret the Bond films in, in different ways. Yeah. I mean, I haven't got a problem with Stamper. He's, cer- he's certainly <laughs> no. like, he's no Elvis from Quantum of Solace, but, you know, he's like. Um, <laughs> as no is, one remembers. He is basically like, <laughs> as no one remembers. He is just a knockoff version of Red Grant, isn't he? Really? <laughs> I didn't Surely. quite appreciate that until you've said that now, but it's it's quite blatant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, like you say, it's, it's 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 the mirror image of Bond, isn't it? They go for the blonde. Well, he's you know got the got the dark hair, but I, I like to think that well, in uh, sort of Grey blonde alternative universe. Um, that Robert Shaw actually does get to play Bond because I think he he could he he's he's oh, the Bond yeah, yeah. what Dalton is you know what I mean I could oh, see him please. you know being attached to Bond I think I think, I think in this film is just like you say he just holds the screen and and you feel that he's an equal you know there are some sort of scenes where you know Bond sort of obviously outwits him and you can see that you know that that red grant maybe isn't as sophisticated as uh, as bond is but i think he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's a great character and robert shaw 
plays the hell out of that character. Oh. He's just he's I just, every time he's Robert Shaw turned down like he didn't he didn't like the script to begin with yeah, and turned yeah. it down and his wife had to kind of convince him to take it. You'd you wouldn't think yeah. from the way he takes this role on. So he's a no he was a notoriously difficult man at times, wasn't he, to work with. I mean yeah. he the the man is He's, he's one of my acting idols, which is a bit bizarre. And this was the reason why. And then when I found out it was from my hometown, I was absolutely <laughs> Oh, yes. And the We're going to get on to this, John. You know, please, please tell us more about that. <laughs> uh, the fact that, like, West Horton, West has Horton. It, which is the suburb of Bolton, you know, has its own Weatherspoons called the Robert Shaw. I mean, it's just it's so, so underrated. Good. You know, I... Tell tell Rachel I'm just going to the Robert Shaw for three. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's. I mean, you know, it's like every other Weatherspoons, but it's so much better because it's the Robert Shaw, <laughs> and um, it's just brilliant. They just need somebody. They need a Bolton Brewery to make a pint of Robert Shaw now, and then oh, we're absolutely yeah. sussed. Blonde, make uh, a blonde. Have a pint it's it's got to be a blonde. It has to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you know one of one of my five top five films of all time is the sting i'm utterly utterly obsessed with the sting i the sting i have a massive poster the sting that is next to my jurassic park poster that's only um it's only like um completely gazumped by my a0 james bond poster but um <laughs> i, I <laughs> the sting i mean he's he's an amazing villain in that but it's completely different. We've got this angry um, Yob, like Yob boss kind of character here. And yet he plays that just as effective. And then you go into Quint from Jaws. And then you go into the taking of the Pelham 123. And you've got this man was just made for villain roles. This man is unbelievable. And it's, and I mean, and, um, I mean, I've read all about his story. He has 11 kids. He's like, he's, yeah. he's got such a fascinating background to him. Um, I I just love, love, love Robert Shaw. Yeah, what an amazing guy. Growing up, I didn't really realise that this was the same guy who played Quentin Jaws. I don't think I did. I think my dad needed to tell me. Very I, I'm sure he looked, he looked, you know, he deliberately looked different, but almost he was probably... His lifestyle in particular, he it had taken its toll. Hadn't it? I think he died when he was fifty-one. He had a had a heart attack in his car whilst he was driving back to his his home in Ireland, which is very sad. But goodness me, what a CV we've gone gone through some of them. He, he um, also he got nominated for an Oscar for Man with uh, Man for All Seasons. I don't know whether you've seen that. Yeah, quite an underrated yeah underrated film like. Paul Schofield, who no one's ever heard of, won an Oscar. A British guy won an Oscar for the main role. I mean, it's just you know, amazing films that seem to be lost today. Um, but yeah, he played Henry VIII in that and uh, got his Oscar nomination. But probably, like you say, Johnny, that sort of those three roles: um, the Quint, Donovan Red Grant, and then in the Sting are the three you'd the three you'd immediately call. Yeah, I I love him, and and I think one of the things that I I only realised when I watched Jaws was he's not very tall at no. all, and in this film, no, no, in this film, um, I read about because Connery is tall. In any scene that he is with Connery, he has to stand on a box 
to actually oh, wow. equal the height of him. Mm. But <laughs> it comes across so imposing, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And again, you know, how when we meet him later and when Rosa Kleb meets him, it's not it's not that he's ripped mus- in a muscular yeah, I was way say or anything that, yeah. like that. He would be now if it, he made it, it now, wouldn't he? It's, uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, he's yeah, much he's, more. He's holding that. his gut and he's wearing the, a teeny tiny towel <laughs> to, to cover his. Yeah. He's, he's absolutely doing a David Brent. He's sucking his stomach. <laughs> he is in his chest in the room, isn't he? You know? <laughs> he really is. But why you does he hold me. it off? He looks like he could still <laughs> yeah, give you a good idea. Yeah, put a bit of grease on him. Nice tan. Yeah, yeah, good enough for me. He <laughs> takes a knuckle duster, doesn't he? I don't, yeah, I can't oh, yeah, that's yeah. he must be pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he ha- harrowingly, um, he, growing up again to talk about his background, his father killed himself when he was just twelve. So what an unbelievable life he's had. Yeah. He then amazingly became a teacher. He was a t- he packed all this in. Goodness me. And then he graduated from RADA, so he's even classically trained. So it's absolutely incredible. He, another two films which uh, I've seen of him in, which are very unfashionable, no one will remember them. Um, I don't know whether you watched it with me, Harry, uh, Robin and Marion, which, of course, has an ageing Robin I didn't Hood and know. an ageing Maid Marion, yeah. yeah. And, of course, again, that teams him up with Sean Connery, who plays, who plays Robin Hood. And, uh, yeah, Audrey Hepburn plays Maid Marion. And uh, honestly, one of the most beautiful scores from John Barry. Absolutely incredible. Uh, <laughs> always got that one in the car, these bizarre John Barry film scores. And another one, in fact, uh, that I saw him in was a film called The Deep. I don't know when any, any of you have seen that. It was Peter Benchley's follow-up to Jaws. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it, again, one of the most beautiful John Barry scores. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. There's a, a disco song by Donna Summer which is so similar, John, to the Moonraker. Because it was like late 70s, you know, where you've got the classic, really haunting <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. melody of John Barry, and then they had a disco beat. Oh, it's, it works so well, I have to say. <laughs> Much like Moonraker, the song. <laughs> Uh, There's a couple of classic <laughs> British uh, war films. Isn't there? Battle, Battle of the Bulge, and, and unlike and every other actor who was working at the time, he was in uh, Battle of Britain. Um, yeah, that. yeah. So I think he's, he's like you say, he's one of those actors. It's just like you know, as a kid, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know him, and he's he's great in everything. Like say, very different performances, very different roles. I think it's you know to be classically trained and then be you know a villain and then do you know. Man for all seasons, and then you know, working with Harold Pint, and you know, he's like he's a yeah. very kind of like a proper sort of Renaissance man who would do like theatre, you know, but then big films and then all that sort of stuff. He's just, he's just, oh, he's a great actor. If he was around now, he would have been, he would have been knighted, wouldn't he, before he died? Uh, you know, he's he'd have had a, everyone would have called him a national treasure, and I, I don't know how, apart from his films and his performances, I don't really know how how much he's mentioned in terms of his legacy as an actor. No, I think there's like a cult status with him. I think, you know, you'll get you'll get certain people, especially Bond fans, who will really appreciate him. And uh, he's, he's probably the most famous person to ever come out of West Horton. Uh, but apart from that, no, he's he's certainly... <laughs> well, he's not mentioned in the same... He's not mentioned in like the same sentence as, say, 
Peter O'Toole, is he, or somebody like that? No, no. But if he'd uh, lived be, longer, he probably would have been. He'd lived longer, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In Just going back to his introduction, it's such a good introduction to him uh, in terms of the menace, isn't it? And I, you can imagine being in the cinema, the shock. I reckon there must have been gasps, wasn't there, when when Bond was killed. It's just incredible. Um, I think now there might be gasps just to see that Michael Myers Halloween mask uh, on the on the deceased uh, yeah. Spectre guy. <laughs> I yeah. thought, yeah. And it sounds but like they're all, yeah, like I, a bracket, like opening like a, an egg or something. Oh, the sound design is yeah. absolutely beautiful, isn't it, for that? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is, and I know we've talked about John Barry, and we've got the gun barrel sequence. But yeah. one of the best decisions about the M sequence is how you've got that gun barrel sequence, and then no music at all. It cuts out all yeah. that fun you've yeah. been having with Doctor No riding the victory, and that it's right back now. You know, hold on tight. Yeah. This isn't going to be pleasant, kind of. And then there's only like a, a brass bam, maybe when I think maybe someone steps on a twig or something, and then yeah. the tension builds. Mm. The, use, the use of music and no music, no score is really, really effective in this film. Absolutely. At the beginning. Good, that. And, and this, yeah. ki- this kind of idea of um, Bond dying is something that they use in quite a few of these early Connery films. I mean, you've got it in Thunderball with. Um, he doesn't yeah. die, but you get the you get the uh, casket with JB, don't you? And then obviously you've got you only live twice, which is all yeah. the, the whole film's based oh, around yeah. <laughs> dying. Yeah. You know, so so it's obviously they obviously looked at it and thought, wow, people like this, we're going to really riff on this because this Let's has got some more of them, some leverage in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, the, so this opening scene said how well it was done. Apparently it was Harry Saltzman's idea, but I don't know why it was originally further on. Originally it was meant to be after, I think, Cleb had met, or just before Cleb had met uh, Donovan Grant, and it was like a, a culmination of their hard work. It was such a good idea for them to move it to the beginning. Again, like we said, it's now cinema history that that incredible opening sequence, pre-title sequence, always happens in the Bond films. But apparently when it was being filmed, they... Initially, well, Saltzman in particular felt that the actor playing Bond's double looked too much like him. So they they'd sort of had to scrap that for the time being because the production had then moved to Istanbul. So the actual shots you see of the, the mask being removed was done after everything else had been done in post-production. Uh, and this time they put a fake, lovely fake moustache on him. <laughs> it is, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. another another chap we see early on, John, one of your favourites, uh, Mozini. Yeah, um, Walter Goltel or Gotel, is it? Yeah, you say Goltel, I say Gotel. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tomato, tomato. You say Mozini, I say. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's brilliant. He he plays a very different character to what he does as. Um, Oh, General Gogol. And um, I actually, because he's so much younger, I didn't even realise it was him until I saw the credits, like yeah. maybe five, six years ago, something like that. He, he, There's not too much to him. He's very much just the kind of, he, you know, he's the training, he, he, the training quartermaster, so to speak. You don't get too much of a backstory in him. Um, 
he comes across a bit stupid towards the end when he basically <laughs> Bond puts all the petrol canisters around his boats and then all of a sudden he goes, we'll stop right oh, there yeah. and uh, we'll <laughs> just let Bond blow them up. I wonder why so that happened. It's not, not the cleverest move ever. <laughs> um, but to be fair to him, he's obviously two-footed because we all thought he was going to stab Rosa Klebb with his yeah. foot and he went he went to the right <laughs> and... Uh, and he went for Kronstein instead. So fair play to him, <laughs> because we always like two-footers. Um, we do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he's good. He's good. Yeah. Where's he supposed to be from, Mozeny, do you think? Yeah, he sounds cut glass English accent uh, by the end of the film. He's, which is quite yeah, the, the, on the boat. Yes. On the boat at the end, he's, yeah, he's really strong British accent, really well-spoken. Really that's all for part one, but join us in part two, where we are introduced to the sinister world of Spectre. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.